And welcome back to Fully Equipped. Jonathan Ball joined, as always, by my cast of characters. Ryan Barath, Chris McCormick, Gene Parenti. Oh, and by the way, we are live, boys. Live. From Scottsdale. In from, the place. from the podcast studio. It's good. This is awesome. This is RB, this is your first time to <clears throat> Scottsdale, right? Yeah, uh, I've been like to the area before, but like to see the offices, see the studio here. This is this is pretty cool. Yeah. This is this is where the magic's made for subpar. It's the mothership. This is it. <laughs> There's not much going on here, man. It's it's pretty it's pretty dead. But we're here. It's great to just be in person, like the four of us. I, I was talking about that with Gene and RB when we were in San Diego. There's something about being in person and just the chemistry. It, I don't know. The podcast episodes just sound better. Well, we were drinking the last time too. So well, I was saying, there was no alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> we were like four or five beers in, which made it a little bit more interesting. We could talk to the subpar guys. There's a lot of stuff kicking <laughs> yeah, around. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was looking at yeah, all the doers over here. <laughs> so a lot of alcohol in I this studio. I didn't want to start <laughs> nipping at noon, so it seemed a little excessive. Nobody's going to judge you. <laughs> it is golf after all. I judge true. you. So, so, you know, I went to the PGA show for 32 years in a row previous to COVID. And I used to have this bet with myself, when would I see a golf pro fall off a bar stool? And the earliest was Tuesday afternoon when I landed, guy got up, face planted right down. (laughs) And I was like, that's impressive. We haven't even gotten started yet. First time, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Going big early. (laughs) It's amazing that the PGA show, you can tell who's there for the very first time and who is a seasoned vet. The seasoned vets, I mean, they're they're just like going through the motions. You know what each day holds. You kind of know it's going to be a long week. And then again, as Gene mentions, you got the guy on Tuesday. He's probably very first year at the PGA uh, show yeah. and he's just going hard right out of the gates. Well, you know, and it's funny. So, uh, Jaywell and I were talking about coming up here, um, how fortunate we are to work in the golf industry and, uh, you know, just kind of the perspective that it's like anything, you know, my joke is even porn stars have to show up for work, right? You know, so... (laughs) You're Every, not wrong. Everything, no, everything. Wrong. Gene, now, Gene has not been drinking yet. I'm just letting you know. This is just Gene right off the cuff. Every, everything becomes a job after a while, but you've got <laughs> to put yourself in perspective and go, hey, we work in the golf industry, right? And I... And I'd have to remind myself of that at the PGA show because it was like, oh, God, I got to go to Orlando. No knock against Orlando, any of the listeners out there. But, um, you know, you'd be in this grind and then you'd run across some fresh-faced 24-year-old. He's like, did you see all the stuff that's out there? You can hit it all. You can hit it all. And his eyes and his head's exploding. I'm like, whoa, whoa, what's this new bright-eyed optimism? But it allows you to kind of slap yourself upside the head and go, you work in the golf industry, man. Be thankful. Be yeah. cool. So we do work in the golf industry, and there's a lot. Big surprise every week. Again, I, I feel like I talk about this once every every quarter. Every time I'm like, eh, I don't know if there's anything to talk about this week. We always have some new gear to talk about. We have Titleist launching new TSR Metal Woods. We can finally talk about it. I know. <laughs> I know. That's that's like the worst part about this gig is getting all the info, getting to hit it. RB, you and I should probably discuss a little bit of our, our testing out at Oceanside. But yeah, it's it's like you just kind of have to sit on it. And it's out on tour. And you were actually there for the launch in Hartford. Um, yeah, it's it's going to be a good episode. We're going to talk about that. We've got a uh, 
a club building diatribe I'm so excited to get into. <laughs> Thanks to some comments that RB made on his Instagram account. Um, also want to discuss RB's testing of the TaylorMade High Toe 3 Wedge. Also Costco and Bettinardi. Do they have any beef? Is this yeah. like made up? Is it real? I had a chance to talk to Sam Bettinardi, president of Bettinardi Golf. We'll touch a little bit on that. And then we'll wrap things up with JJ Van, we uh, Van Wesenbeek. I always mess up his name. Sorry, JJ. I love you, buddy. Who's the head of tour for Titleist. I had a chance to go deep with him when I was in Memphis, talking everything TSR, testing with Spieth, JT, the whole crew. But first and foremost, let's start with my favorite topic. Let's start with this club building diatribe. So right. here I am, thumbing through my Instagram account, and I see that Herbie's posted something new to his Instagram story. And listen, you're Canadian. You're a mild-mannered guy. I don't think I've really ever seen you get fired up. But even not being with you at the time, you, you were fired up, man. There was something about, <laughs> about the, this club building. People were sending you pictures of recent builds. And you just went off on all these guys that I would say are building shitty golf clubs. Call yeah. it like it is. Call yeah. spade a spade. Bad, really bad golf clubs. And it's beyond frustrating from my perspective because like, I've run a build shop before. And I know that it was me and another builder and we had people that worked alongside us to help do some other tasks like weight sorting and do these other things so we could kind of get to like the real detailed part of it. And every single club that ever came out of that build shop was always checked, like every single one. And, you know, from your perspective at TrueSpec, like there's a, I was there today for the first time and I got to see the build shop. I was like, man, this is really cool. And you're like, I'm peeking over. I'm like, yeah, these guys, they're doing good work. Like, everything I can tell, like they're doing really good work. But when it comes to like my Instagram, I feel like, and I, I'm not, I don't say this like, cause I'm thinking highly of myself. I'm just like trying to like put it into perspective in like any way that I possibly can. And as I get questions all the time, it's like, the building Yoda guy. And that's not me. Like I'm not, I'm not that old. I, I still am learning I see a shirt with RB's yeah. head and Yoda. Yeah. I like I'm still it. and a loft lie machine next to it. I'm still, yeah. I like dude, it. dude, I like you it. had a loft lie machine at 16. Let's remember that. Let's but, keep that in perspective. But with all that in mind, like I've always put a huge amount of like pressure on myself to like make a golf. Cause of people, when people ask, it's it's I feel bad when people spend a lot of money on golf clubs and get terrible work done. And that's what it was. And it all stemmed from someone who reached out on Instagram. They'd asked me because I I have a shop in my house. I've shared pictures of it on Instagram. And you know, it's this it's basically everything you'd have at a true spec. <laughs> like it's all there. Like I can frequency match, I can swing weight, I can weight sort, I can turn ferals down, I can everything. It's all it's all in this like little space in my basement. But I don't do any club work for people anymore. Because first of all, I'm really busy. And my kid's bedroom's above me. So if I'm going to do work, it's at night and I can't run saws and, and sanders and all that stuff with my kids sleeping. Just give them earmuffs. Or... Yeah. yeah, earmuffs. Put the sound machine up real high and run the vacuum. But this person sent me a message. I said, I'm sorry, I'm not doing any work like right now. I appreciate it. Um, and then, you know, that was probably a month, two months ago now. This is the work I got back from somebody. What do you think? I'm, like, I'm sorry, that's awful. Like really, really bad. They were glued ferals. The clubs were assembled. You were talking gaps that were like eighth of an inch. There's epoxy all over the place. And when it comes to graphite shafts, steel shafts, you can kind of get away with like a little bit once in a while because you can kind of just take a hot knife to it and it'll peel off the shaft. You can't do it with graphite. Uh -huh. Like you've pooched a graphite shaft if you're trying to like clean epoxy off it. And you can work with hosels and all that stuff. And it just bugs me to no end to see 
people who spend a lot of money on golf clubs. And there's no, this is one of the arguments I've had for a long time, there's no certification within the industry, right? Like anyone calls themselves a club builder. Like, Do you think that's a problem? It's a huge problem. It, it's a big, big problem because like there's nobody to hold someone accountable except for a customer. And if a customer doesn't know what they're looking at, that's where my, that's where my job and I, I take a lot of pride in is like educating people and understanding like what goes into a good looking golf club. That's why like when I show off pictures of ferals that are done, I'm like, look, if your golf club doesn't look like this, like this is the standard that I expect. Like if someone is building me a set of golf clubs, there's only a few people that like I trust like personally, like I would say, Hey, like my buddy, you, you can build a set of golf clubs. Like I trust that. Right. And you know, I think golfers should have that within like the person that they're trusting or the company that they're buying golf clubs from. Right. Like that to me is the biggest thing when it comes to all of this is that you should expect quality from that, that club builder that you're getting it from. And, and anyone can use a belt sander and buy some epoxy and say they're building golf clubs. Well, you're not a professional at it. Like I'm still learning all the time, but to have this person just like come to me and say, look, I spent $40 on Boyd blade and Feral Co Feral. So they're really fancy and you can't save those. So you just out yourself 40 bucks plus the time that you went to go drive there and get them back. And now you've got crappy golf clubs. You don't know if, if that's what's on the outside that you can see that they're going to present to a customer and say, here are your golf clubs. Yep. What the hell is going on, on the inside of them? Did you wait? or did you check? Did you put the grips on straight? All of this stuff comes down to like the customer should expect quality from their products back. They should expect it from a builder. And because there's no accountability, people need to be accountable for this. Because in the industry – there is, I know you guys do a lot of training. I know a lot of places yep. do a lot of training and they do good work, but there's a lot of individuals out there that rip people off and I just it bugs me to no end. I wonder if some of it is a function of the success of golf in the pandemic and, you know, these years afterwards. In other words, like a lot of these places, from what I've heard, they are so slammed now with appointments and things and like everything you know, there was a labor shortage of qualified people. And I wonder if they're just putting people into positions that they're not qualified or that they're so backordered, they're just trying to get, you know, as soon as you have an insane amount of business, it's really tough sometimes to keep that quality up. And, you know, I, I don't know, just throwing that out there is, you know, a possible explanation. Yeah. Or they just suck at what they do. I mean, I, I knew somebody who worked for, so being, that's, that's being, other fair point. being in Canada, I knew someone who worked for like Titleist Canada, so I'm willing to say the OEM, and he worked in assembly because they used to do custom products out of their warehouse there. And now everything comes out of, it all comes out of one place. We saw it there and we went to the, uh, see the TSR stuff. We got to walk through their, their facility and it's insane. Like the, the level of quality control and checks that they have. It's really, really cool to see. Um, but his job, he was really good at turning ferals. So you know what job he got all the time? And he, he could build golf clubs start to finish. But a lot of people couldn't finish ferals as good as he could. So by the t- after a few like months in the job, guess what he did every day? Turned a hell of a lot of ferals. Yep. And that was his job because they knew that that was an integral part of like finishing a golf club for the consumers. Yes, other people can put grips on and that's not a, like an overly difficult task. But to finish a feral is something where like it's got to look good. Right. It's, it's a piece of finishing on, I would say like, and I'm not a big like watch guy, but like, I mean, I, this is not an expensive one, but like people like look at finishes and stuff like that. And I always find like the videos on YouTube where they get the macro lens into these watches and you're like, that's so cool. But that's why that watch is really expensive. And this one's kind of cheap because you kind of like see the stuff that they're not getting the detail work right. 
you spend a lot of money on golf clubs, you should get the details right every single time. You should be delivered the same product every single time. And I, it just bugs me when people don't get that. Well, it's kind of like painting. I don't paint because I suck at painting. When I paint, I could square things off with tape. It doesn't matter. It just, <laughs> it doesn't work. And I don't build golf clubs the same way because I suck at building golf clubs. And it's, I do not have that eye for detail that it is required to do a really good job. I think it's a part of your brain that really has to work and really see things like you said in minutia. And if you don't have, or have trained that you're just, you're going to fall short. It's either a, a time. If you're, if it's an individual builder, it's either a time constraint that they've either put on themselves that they think they need to do it fast enough and they don't do it right. Or they just don't want to do it right in the first place. Or for like larger companies, it means that you don't have enough people to take, to handle it. Right. Like I know if I'm going to build a set of golf clubs, it takes you a couple hours, like start to finish. If I like break it up and do the grips and stuff, like I re just regripped all my golf clubs. Um, it took me like again. I got a podcast on. Wasn't listening to our own podcast. No offense, guys. Um, got some music playing, listening to stuff, and I'm like, okay, it took me like 45 minutes to do like 10 golf clubs. But I took the old tape off. I heated it up. I made sure it was all good. Lined the grips up straight. Made sure they were all put on so they're all the same width. Right, like all that stuff takes time. Now they're my own golf clubs, but I put that same. And I when I build golf clubs, I Take a lot of time for the people that I do build golf clubs for because they're when they do pay me, they pay me a lot of money to build golf clubs. I charge a lot of money when I build a set of golf clubs. And I have people ask me, like, what do you charge? Because if someone's charging me $15 to put a golf club together, they're probably not doing a very good job. Well, to your point, though, and from a consumer's perspective, you don't know what you don't know. Exactly. And if there's nobody to hold said builder accountable and they deliver you a set of quote unquote custom built clubs, and you don't know what to look for as far as the details are concerned or how to identify a, a properly built club from something that was essentially that was the slapped together, then the consumer is essentially taking the builder at face value and going, okay, this looks like a golf club. And without having that educational base to go, this ferrule looks like shit, this grip looks like shit, this, it, whatever the case may be, yeah. if they're essentially not held accountable and the consumer goes, yeah, my golf club's built. Here's a golf club. And again, you don't know what you don't know. So where is that checks and balances for the local consumer that's trusting their professional to provide a good service? Like I knew when I worked where I did, like people would come in and they would have like a certain brand of shaft and a certain brand of head. And they went to this one builder because he had an account with this one company. And I'm like keeping all names and everything out of this identification out of it. <laughs> Name them. We want receipts. But yeah, I was going to say. This person, would, the people would come in and the work was also really shoddy. And I don't know, you'd see them like once a month because like, it wasn't a big shop. He was an, an individual person. I say, you got this from X person. And they'd go, yeah, how'd you know? And I said, well, let me tell you. I can look at your golf clubs right now. Tell you, you've got one brand of golf shafts in your in your club heads. That's all they fit to. They only fit to this brand, and I know why you went there because they are selling that brand under MSRP, and they build crappy golf clubs, and that's why you're here talking to me because these aren't working. And you know, why aren't you going back to that person? And I didn't really feel like, well, you just put three thousand dollars on a set of golf clubs. Why are you not going back to the person that you spent three thousand dollars with? No, because you're coming to me, not me specifically, but where I was working or where I've worked in the past because you trust me to do it now because you realize I probably just wasted a bunch of money. And you should, if you're going to spend anywhere, whether it's $2,000 set of golf clubs or whatever it happens to be a big expensive car, you should get that value out of it. Yeah, that's my biggest concern. 
as we're going through this is there isn't a there isn't a blueprint or a book for consumers out there to say, all right, well, a well-built golf club is supposed to look like this. Is my Instagram page now? Well, yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, just just go just go to Arby's Instagram, throw out your handle for your for your personal one, just in case. Oh, it's uh, RDS Brath. Yep. B a r a t h. Well, and you know, it brings up an interesting point. I remember, eesh, this is about twenty years ago. I think it was called ASTM and someone's probably going to correct me on this, but it was basically a society of standards that came to the golf industry and said, Hey, we're looking at what you guys do. We want to give you a standardization process for flex or for, you know, loft and, and, you know, we do this for all industries in your industry. We're just kind of interested in because it's a small industry. So they got all the leaders in the room nobody wanted to agree on anything. Nope. Everybody wanted wiggle room. And I went to, I think it went on for like two or three years. And finally they <laughs> just gave up and they were like, you guys are all batshit crazy over there in the yep, golf industry. But, yeah. <laughs> but it was like crazy like a fox because by having wiggle room, you could juice the lofts or you could weaken the lofts or you could, you know, and everybody could kind of, you know, fudge whatever they wanted to exaggerate the performance qualities for a specific section of the golf industry. And at first it made me nuts. And then I was like, huh, that's kind of interesting because they realized if you standardized everything, there was going to be less differentiation between products. And so, yeah. And so I think you probably run into the same resistance, even though your beef is well placed because it's a quality beef and, and, you know, it's not necessarily a performance beef. You could get into that a little bit with weighting and things like that, especially if you're affecting CG, but at the end of the day, it's a quality beef. And, um, I, I, I don't ever see everybody coming to the table and agreeing because it just, why do it? You know, it just, it hamstrings you. I, I mean, think I was with you at the studio today and it, it's funny because like, you know, I look, I always look at the wall and see all the product because like, I don't have a shop in my house. I mean, I have a build shop. I don't have all these golf groups in one place. It's kind of sure. cool. It's like, you've got a Ventus over here, which is like a 6S. And then you've got the Zexio, which they will call a stiff. Mm-hmm. Not the same color, not the no, same stiff. Not even close. They're completely targeted to different golfers. And that's where the fitting aspect, like the fitters, like knowledge plays into that. Right. And that's what I think is always really important. No, oh, 100%. And I think when it comes down to holding somebody to a standard, I mean, you could almost equate it to like a plumber or a mechanic. Like you take your car to a mechanic. How do you know it's a good mechanic? How do you know that the quality of labor that they've provided is is better than somebody else's or worse than somebody else's? You take your car in, it's making a noise or doing something weird. You leave and it's gone. You know, little do you know, you start crawling under the hood and there's shit held together with duct tape. Yeah, is the problem fixed? Yeah, kinda. Yeah, is it as fixed uh, to you know to the best of its possibilities? No, but me as a consumer, I wouldn't know what to look for. I go, yeah. oh, it doesn't make that noise anymore. We're good. I yeah, and I mean, I had someone reach out. I, I like, and a lot of people reach out from like talking about clubs. But I had a teacher reach out, and very, I had someone I know and respect very well in like the teaching uh, circle in Canada, and he's like, man, I had this exact conversation. But I, I mean, I can't call people. I can't, I'm, it's literally under our association. Like I can't go out and say, this guy does really bad lessons and he charges a hundred dollars an hour. Like you just, 
Is it, you know, you're part oh, of that? Oh, God, you want to talk. I know. That's, that's that's it's another can of worms. It's another can of worms. Perceived like, value. But, but that, yeah, but that's There's the thing. There's a lot it's going like, on underneath the surface. I think about the, like, the iceberg where you see, you know, the top of the iceberg above the water. And then everything yeah. underneath the water, and it's like, yeah, there's a lot of really Peel interesting conversations that could be had if you wanted to open up that can. Right. Of those, that, that those, was just those guys falling off the bar stool at uh, yeah. Tuesday <laughs> at noon. Uh, you might want to steer clear of them. I yeah. equate it to I kind of like the medical industry, where if the golf industry was anything like the medical industry, we would have a lot of cases of malpractice. And a lot of dead golfers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, bottom, I'm really line. glad I'm in the golf industry. <laughs> yeah. Me too. Bottom line, I, I think we can all agree there is no there is no handbook that will teach you how to how to look for a properly built golf club, but it's important to ask questions. Yep. And if something doesn't look right, at least ask. Maybe it's it's looked that way before and you just weren't weren't looking at it with a critical eye maybe you learned something about your gear but yeah bottom line if you're paying for the clubs don't feel bad about questioning whether the club was properly built i have people ask about the adjustable hosels on some drivers and they send me pictures like there's like these little gaps here and i'm like no they're actually intentionally offset like when they lock in like you'll see like a little gap on one side or the other they're like oh thank you and i said yeah no no it's it's fine like that's just it's just knowledge and now you know so someone asks you you're 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 able to share that right and that's that to me is always my biggest thing is like you educate one person, you're probably going to just educate three more golfers in that group, and that's you know, that's the well. Idea. And and I would say I I, I, I think <laughs> yeah. that I think that this is a case where you know for the listeners out there that uh, consumer reviews come in, you know that that you know if you're going to spend three grand, read some consumer reviews of whoever you're going to and see you know because I mean no offense but most of the consumer reviews are the Karens of the world that are just typing away and so keyboard if they, warrior if, if, the, if there's an issue with you know something they're going to state that and you can kind of filter out those that just have you know ridiculous beefs versus those that have legitimate beefs but you know you're putting down a decent amount of money. So do a little bit of research to whomever you are going to, you know, put that money, you know, pay that money to. 100%. Yep. All right. Well, I feel like that's a good place to end that discussion. We probably could have spent a full episode just talking about the club building process, but all right. This is a fun story. You know, I'm used to writing about golf clubs in, you know, reviewing clubs and spending time out on tour and then came this story, then the last week, it was a Friday afternoon news dump. I get a Slack message, and the message has a link to Bettinardi's Twitter account, and it says, hey, do you know what's going on here? And I thought, oh gosh, what is this? <laughs> and so I read the statement from Bettinardi, and you know, I'm with my kids, and I pretty much like mentally have shut down for, for the long weekend. And I'm reading about how you know, there were putters of theirs at Costco and there was a South American distributor that they've since, you know, pointed out as the as the guy who is selling the putt. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this sounds like a salacious story. Um, let's just table it for next week. And not to, like, put on the, like, big capital J journalism hat, but I was really surprised that nobody actually called up Bettinardi and asked them to 
provide some additional context. Because I read some of the content that was out there and it was literally just people regurgitating the, the statement that they posted on the social media account. So, you know, being being a big capital J journalism nerd. Big John, yep, J yeah, journalist. Big J, big J John, yep. I decided to reach out to Sam Bettinardi, who is Bob Bettinardi's son. Sam is now the president of Bettinardi Golf. And I said, hey man, do you have any more info on this? And I got the whole story. Go check it out on golf.com. But it is a very interesting tale. So uh, about three months ago, Bettinardi Putters, their studio stock line that retails for $449, they just happened to show up on Costco's website for about 100 bucks less. And mm. Sam told me that he had heard rumblings that you know, the putters are on there and he's like, look, I, you know, I wasn't going to say anything. Didn't want to, didn't want to, you know, make a big deal about it. So he's going to let it go. Well, about two and a half weeks ago, their queen bee putters started showing up on Costco. And he told me that there was a video that a, uh, a girl in the golf industry posted on her Instagram account that he said did over a million views. So pretty much went viral talking about these Betnardi putters that were being sold at a discount on Costco's website. And so at this point, he's like, we got we to figure this out. So Sam starts looking around with the rest of his team. And through some back-end research, they come to find out that this South American distributor that they had recently done a deal with, South America, now, Betnardi, I should point out, they do, um, they distribute in almost 50 countries. Wow. So they, they have a pretty large footprint across the globe. But one of the areas that they hadn't been able to, to you know, make inroads in was South America. And he was, you know, Sam was talking to me about, you know, you've got Joaquin Neiman now in Chile. You've got Argentina, which has a really strong golf population. Um, but the big issue was for countries like Brazil, the taxes to bring in a product from the U.S. are sky high, like 120%. Damn. Yeah. So they had never really tried to make inroads because it was really expensive. Well, they find this guy who's a distributor. He says, look, he, here's my business plan. I have all the connections. Everything checked out was what Sam told me. So they let him, they let him rip. And come to find out that he wasn't letting the, the putters rip in South America. He was merely <laughs> sending them back to Costco in the U.S. where the putters are being manufactured nice. and being sold on their website. Um, that's a first for me. I don't think, you know, Costco has been like now they have – I mean, their putters are actually really good. Their wedges, really good. The golf balls, they've had a little bit of a checkered pass with their golf balls and with some of the major OEMs and sure. maybe using past product, but they make good stuff. And now it feels like they're back in it again, but Sam told me there's there's no beef there with Costco. It's more with their distributor and Costco's just kind of in the middle of this battle. But I thought it was an interesting story just simply because you rarely get to like, rarely does this beef come out. Like typically it's all done behind closed doors. And here was Betnardi just kind of letting it rip on a Friday. So now that it's there, I mean, it begs the question, is Costco a new distributor for Betnardi? No. Yeah. <laughs> so, so once they're gone, they're gone. It's well, they're now, they're officially gone because I checked their website. Gone. They're no longer there. The putters were selling at about $100 under MSRP. Oh. And, but I was really surprised that... And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to Sam. I was reading through the comments on Betnardi's uh, Twitter account. And all these people were like, well, your putters aren't even good enough for Costco. Costco's a better brand than you. And people, I mean, there are a lot of Costco 
diehards out there. And Sam told me, he's like, look, I grew up going to Costco and like would buy the giant tub of cookie dough and get a bellyache. He's like, I love Costco. So uh, this is me not going after Costco. But, you know, the fact is like the putters were there. They shouldn't have been there. They didn't get consent consent from Bettinardi. You got a lot of unhappy, you know, pro shops and places here in the U.S. that are selling putters at a certain price point. Then all of a sudden they see them for a hundred bucks less on Costco's website. And it's like, hey, what the hell? So I get it. I get why, but I think a lot of a lot of the the hatred towards Bettinardi was unfounded. It's just people that thought that it was them calling out Costco for selling their putters when in actuality they weren't supposed to be there in the first place. Well, I think if they would have bundled them and you had to buy like five putters at once, <laughs> nobody would have said anything. It's the one off thing. That's what did it. Yeah. It's, there were a lot of them, though. I mean, it was literally every model. Yeah, they were. Yeah, I remember seeing. I remember to your point. I remember seeing the video, and I was like, "Oh, okay, that's interesting." And I, I thought, kind of like, so, you know, I've done a lot of. I've had a lot of different jobs, and I've worked to Costco. I worked to Costco for a summer, and you worked everywhere. I worked Arby. everywhere. Um, I worked to Costco for a summer, and one of the things like they're really good as far as training and corporate structure and all that stuff. Like I always think they do a really good job. Uh, shout out Costco, but the. Um, <laughs> The big thing for them is like they're always trying to deliver value to their members. It's like it's on their website. Now, maybe I don't have the, the whole like uh, mission statement perfectly correct, but like that's their goal. So if someone approaches them and says, hey, we have a bunch of this product. It's a premium product. We're going to sell it at this price. You know what your markup's going to be on it. This is what we're going to do. What do you think? Their buyers are more often than not going to jump on that opportunity. That's why you see like one-off products show up at Costco all the time. And you're like, oh, wow, they have this. But, you know, as, as the golden rule, if you're a Costco shopper is, if you don't buy it now, you're never going to come back. You're like, I'll come back yep. in a couple weeks. No, it's going to be gone. Because <laughs> yep. the weekend's going to come through. Like 5,000 families are going to roll through that parking lot. They're going to spend about 300 bucks in each one of their carts. And they're going to be out the door. And they're probably going to have some of those things that you wanted, right? It is. It does come down to the fact that like it just was a product. It just If you don't even think about it as a golf product, it was just a product that someone had legally, but they sold it to somewhere they shouldn't have. And Costco didn't know that. They just took advantage of it. But I can understand from Bettinardi's point of view, right? Like, you don't want to see it in that environment. Like, you don't want to see it in that environment because, like, they promote fitting and they promote going, like, making sure that you get the right club. Like, it's not really the same thing as buying a set of wedges for $139. Well, and this isn't the first time that this has happened at Costco. No. And, and it's happened with some bigger <laughs> OEMs. And there's always been, you know... This one, it seems like a pretty clear case, but a lot of times there's like plausible deniability. And, you know, back to the PGA show, I was sitting there about 20, 25 years ago when the gray market used to exist going to Japan and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and if you were having kind of a lean sales year, you would uh, just flow some product through the gray market because it upped your numbers. And I was sitting in a lounge one time next to these two very large Italians with gold chains and they just, they did not fit in. And so I'm sitting there having- They weren't wearing enough khaki for the PGA No, they were not wearing enough khaki. And so I, I started talking to them and I was like, what are you guys doing here? And they're like, we're in the import export business. <laughs> and, I'm like, and I'm like, where are you based on? They're like Las Vegas. And uh, so a few drinks in, they cop to me that, you know, that, that was their gig. And they'd go for these side hustles, either legitimately or not. And they wouldn't tell me. 
buy a bunch of merchandise, ship it off, and everybody yep. kind of goes, I don't know where that came from. Yeah, I don't know I, how I that sold it. I don't know how I sold it to <laughs> I sold it to a um, you know, a golf retailer in Las Vegas and I don't know. And they you know, to the OEM's credit, because they realized they were undercutting their distributors in these countries, they they kind of cleaned up their act on that. Kind and now that and now there's yeah, I mean there's still a little bit of iffy, but this isn't a first for Costco and it won't be the last for Costco because I mean, this one, it sounds like somebody did something dicey, but there's been other times where product just shows up and everybody goes, I don't know how it got there. And you never get to the bottom of why, you know, that product ended up there. Beauty of being Costco. Yep. All right. Well, there's a major launch happening today. Hiles TSR finally out in the open. We can talk about it. RB and I had a chance to go out to Oceanside to TPI. You posted a great video, by the way, with the Jurassic Park. Oh, the song. gates. Yeah, the gates yeah, at TPI. Opening. It, it does feel a little bit like that. Even though I've been there a bunch of times, it's still really fun to go to Oceanside and get a chance to test a new product. And I got to be honest, I was pretty skeptical walking in because TSI was so good yep. that you go, all right. So you made this major jump with the ATI 425 face. Your driver's done fantastic on tour, number one driver on tour. You're getting a lot of non-contract guys playing your driver, which I've continued to say before, if you want to look at products that are doing well, that pros like, look at what the non-contract guys are playing because they're not getting any money for playing that driver. And so I did walk in and I'm like, hey, I even told the Titleist guys, I think you're going to have a tough time beating my TSI. And then we did the product presentation, the rundown. RB did a really great job breaking down all the new product from the drivers to the fairway woods. And man, damn if they didn't find a way to add a little bit more <laughs> ball speed. But it wasn't even for me the ball speed with this. It was something that JJ, and you'll hear about it in the interview that I did with him uh, about a month ago. He said the one thing that pros really liked was the the spin deltas mm-hmm. were a lot tighter. So the high spins weren't as high and the low spins weren't as low on the missed hits, which that's what the average golf rider who's listening to this podcast, I, I'm pretty sure you don't own a PGA Tour card. So this is what you were probably going, yes, that's what I want. So they're just tighter deltas. And I talked to Justin Thomas about that and a few other pros and they all were saying the same thing. So, um, I mean, what did you think? What, what were your initial reactions to TSR? That was really cool, like the whole like, experience. Um, from a looks perspective, the the two is a lot better shaped. Not the again, not the other one was bad, but they've just everyone knew that the three was really good. I think the three is kind of the flagship model of that line if we were to look at it that way. And the two has the shaping of that driver, but it's a little bit more forgiving. They've added some more aerodynamics to it, and. Um. I was thinking about this the other day, actually, which is like, I know we were going to talk about this, but I was literally like I was trying to like figure out a way to rationalize it for someone who's like listening or trying to think about what it means. Like when we say a half mile an hour, a mile an hour faster or more aerodynamic, right? And if you're driving, if you're driving 60 miles an hour down the, down the highway, stick your hand out the window, you'll have a lot of air resistance, right? Imagine going 100 miles an hour or 120 miles an hour, we're talking club head speed, right? In that moment of impact as it's accelerating, there's a lot of force pushing back on that club head. 
right? Like you're feeling when you stick your hand out the window. And I was trying, I was like, well, it actually, like, how do you experience that speed? Because you can't put your hand on the club head or anything like that. You stare out a window and you're like, whoa, right? Like that, there's a lot of force there. So they've created this aerodynamic uh, package on this driver and you can see it. It's cleaner on the bottom. It's got a little, not to use it, I, I love using my car analogy. It's got a little diffuser on the back of the two. And everything about it is designed to be more consistent and faster. And to your point about the deltas, right? When it comes, especially when it comes to fitting, mm-hmm. right? The one club that I was super impressed with beyond the drivers was the Fairy Woods. Fairy Woods are always really good. They don't need, get near as much credit for, they, for how good and these are. Like I was, I was a TSI like E three user. I liked it. I found that if I did get low on the club face, which I tend to do, it spins a lot. Every, but every fairy wood does that. Like, I'm sure. not saying that it's just their fairy wood, but you kind of get a little jumper once in a while, which is great for like a five wood if you need to get a little higher and stop it. But the one club that I was messing around with, which I was out on the range just beating balls with my fitter, Glenn, was the TSR2 Plus. I like the stronger lofted fairy wood. I like using it off the tee. And I was like, man, this thing's really good. Like, you're not seeing it. Like, and I came, I came, I could totally feel like come from a sim original sim fairwood and didn't never got rid of it i just love that thing but it just it's uh that thing when you hit it high in the face can get really low spin oh yeah <laughs> i'm talking driver number spin even less than this i find when you can, you can hit on it and it just you don't get the super low spin you get a very consistent spin window so i went out and actually played with it a couple like last week i was like man this is actually like you're, i'm hitting the distance that i want to and i'm not seeing that back and forward like i actually don't want it to go further like if I would wanted to go further, I hit my driver. I wanted to go a certain distance. And I think that's where all of this ability to control spin and control the variables that lead to what what you get with launch conditions is what benefits the player at the end of the day. And I think they've done that really well. Even to the fours point, the three was really good. You can put the weight in the back. You get kind of three numbers, but a smaller look. And it's one of the only small that's, drivers on the market. Yeah. Yep. Or you put the weight Special. in the front and the thing just goes. Pew. Yep. Yeah. It's. It is really good. The one thing that stood out to me when I was testing drivers, and I will mention that I also found a, I found a fairway wood, but drivers specifically was my my miss is a toe miss, and that was the one where TSI was good, but this one the numbers the the spin numbers were really tight, like tighter the delta between my center hits or getting close to center for me because I'm not a robot, but they were a lot tighter than they were with my TSI. And that's something that they had mentioned they were really working on. And they had talked to, I talked to tour pros and they were saying the same thing. Like guys that were out on tour switching right away were telling me, toe misses, I I miss it off the toe. And this one's just a lot more consistent. So if you're a golfer out there, you miss stuff. I'm not saying that if you miss it out of the heel, that it's not going to be a great driver for you. But if you're like a lot of golfers who miss it more off the toe, yeah. This, this is going to be a, a good one to try out. I'm, I can't wait for Gene to get it on the robot. No, we're testing it as we speak to find out. So I'm really curious. It just from both of your perspectives, when you hit it on the toe, did it come back or did it stay out? Or what was the shot shape? For me, I felt like it. So being a lefty. You hit some quackers. Like when you when you do miss it, it's like it's a toe hook. <laughs> Dude. I do I, too. I do too. It's, it's like so snappy and... You know, that's what I was telling my fitter, Joey Saywitz from TPI. Shout out Joey for finding a really great driver for me. But we worked on that because it's like, I, he said, well, what do you want to see? And I said, I want to not see the right side of the, of the fairway. If, if anything, I'm wanting to hit just 
a fade or just almost feeling like a block. Like I just want yeah. it to stay out there. And if I do, I can swing more confidently and I'm able to start generating higher ball speeds and yep. start getting it out there. So we really worked on that. And I was noticing that on those toe misses, I wasn't seeing it like even really kind of start coming back. It was just kind of hanging out on that line, mm -hmm. which is really nice to see because typically anytime I'm hitting that toe miss, I mean, it's gonzo. And it's it's not and not a good and way. And this was the two? This was the three. Oh, this was the three. Yeah, this okay. was the three. Yep. Okay. So I, gotcha. I ended up in the, T, the TSR three, and then I ended up in a TSR two fairway. But my fairway, I talked about it a few episodes ago. It was 18 degrees, but 41 and a half. So basically seven wood, mm. seven wood length. And once I knew that, I'm like, oh, crap. This is perfect because now I feel more confident because the club's a little bit shorter and I feel like I can go after it. And again, just being a mental midget when it comes to my gear and in golf in general, if I know something is more controllable, like, oh man, this is a little bit shorter. This is, this is going to be better for me. Then I'm able to just go after it a bit more. I don't know what yeah. it is. Um, yeah, but it was, it was a lot of fun testing out product out at Oceanside. The, the new stuff really does live up to the hype. Pros are saying a mile, two miles an hour faster than TSI. I was kind of seeing that. I was actually doing some testing yesterday at home. I was telling Gene I was out in the backyard, you know, banging balls. And yeah, it was it was like two to three miles an hour faster. I mean, I was I was getting up to, I mean, just smoothing it. I was like 162 and then like was able to get a couple, you know, 163, 164. So that was again being outside in the heat and kind of loosening yeah. up, loosening up the back a little bit. <laughs> I, I'm I'm definitely suffering today. I'm feeling pretty tight, but yeah, it's it's been fun testing it and just kind of going back and forth between TSI and TSR with the same shaft and just kind of trying to see what uh what they're what they're made of. That was really similar to what I saw during testing. I kept checking my phone, waiting to get an invite to go to Oceanside. It never happened. <laughs> So I Whoops. had to do uh, I had to do my testing here locally in Scottsdale. Uh, luckily, you know, I have some friends at Titleist, so I got some product. And I was testing uh, TSI three versus TSR three, and the two versus the two, and so on and so forth. Uh, and coincidentally, yeah, when I was making a transition, same shaft, same setup, just swapping the heads, made sure my head weight was the same, measured loft, loft was within a half degree or less uh, on the heads that I was testing. And I picked up three miles an hour from wow. TSI three to TSR three. And like Jay wall was saying, it was a much more consistent Delta off of that toe miss. And the spin threshold was substantially tighter. And I was, I was pleasantly surprised with it. And then TSR two fairway wood, same thing. I struggle with launching a fairway wood. And this thing was so easy to launch. It was, it was really impressive to put in play and hit, TSI two fairway versus TSR two fairway and see a significant difference in ease of launch and ball speed came up, spin came up and just overall playability of that fairway wood was noticeably different. Yeah. I think the big change for, for these drivers, ATI's back again. I mean, I would have been shocked if titles did anything other than an ATI face Yep, and they've now made some tweaks. So, before it was the same ATI face across all the drivers, and now they're making some modifications. So there's a uh, a new like thick thin variable thickness face on the, the TSR three, and that's just again RB mentioned it. The the pros said like don't mess this up. Yeah. TSI three is really good. Do not mess this up. 
So what do you want to see? Well, I'd like to see a little bit more, you know, misfit protection on that toe. And again, that kind of comes in with this variable thickness space that they're able to still ATI and then also like make it faster. So how do you do that? Well, then you kind of vary the thickness of the face, kind of work on that toe, but don't mess with the shape. Don't do anything. And, and they did it. I mean, that's, that's exactly what they did with this, with this new TSR three. And that's why I was skeptical, I think, because the TSI three was so good. You're just like, yeah, I mean, how much more ball speed can you really squeeze out of that face? And they did it just simply because yeah. the different face, uh, face construction. And I know they're not going to get, and you just mentioned it, but like, if you are out there and you're looking at fairywoods, I know everyone, the fairywoods never get the sexy talk. Cause it's like, you know, they're, they they're, no, they're not <laughs> yeah. as flashy. They, they don't, well, they don't have ATI and I, it's, and it's yeah. like my favorite buzzword. But I always mean like, I think there is a big, if people are like, oh, I like my three, but I don't need to change my three. And you probably see it fits all the time. I've had this fairywood for five, 10 years. It works really well. But, you know, someone comes in for a driver fit, all of a sudden they pick up 20 yards. It's like, well, are you still, you still want to keep that fairywood that's now 40 yards behind your driver instead of being 20 yards behind your driver? I watched yep. that. I was at one of the studios today. Literally watched that conversation happen with a, with a fitter and a client. Every day. And it was, look, you're now carrying your driver this far to this distance. We need to look at your three-wood because what you're hitting now is that the gap is so much bigger you should really look at what what you're going to do to manage that gap for yourself, Jonathan. You got you ended up with a fairywood, and you'd like more unusual specs, but something that works for you, right? And there is no there's no standard as you talked about in the industry, Gene. So it's whatever works. And so if you're looking at that fairywood, I, it was so funny because I literally watched that happen hours ago at one of the studios. Where he's like, "Look, let's go into this." You know, I was kind of I wasn't hanging over the person. I was sitting over off in the corner, just kind of seeing what was going on, like watching fittings and. You know, 20 minutes later, it's like, see, look, here, this is that we are ending out the rollout of your three wood where your driver's carrying to now. We're getting height on it. You can stop it if you want to in the green. This is really good. And I'm like, that's a great fit right there. Yep. And I love watching that. I love watching that because I know that the fitter knows what they're doing and I know the golfer's going to be happy. Yep. And it fits that spot in my bag. You know, I, I mentioned before, I have a Titleist T200 two iron with a graphite shaft. It's like a 240, 245 club for me. But I, you know, he told me he's because I was like, look, I don't really need a, a fairy wood. And he's like, yeah, but what happens if you go play golf in Florida and you need to bring it in? And you need to stop it. Yep. He's like, and you live in Texas, so that two iron is probably going to be great for you. But if you go play golf elsewhere, you probably need another option. So we worked on trying to find that 245 club for me with more with more height. That's going to have a steeper descent angle. Found it. And yeah. it, it was, it was exciting. I loved hitting that golf club. And, and again, as you mentioned, Joey did a great job walking me through the process of like, here's why we should work on fairway. You know, I understand it's a club you don't use, but. You were skeptical. I, I, watched, was I mean, I was kind yeah. of paying attention. He's like, I don't yeah. really need it. And then they just kept working. And all of a sudden it's like, hey, I found a fairway one. Yeah. yeah. I was like, that's the whole point. Well, but you know, <laughs> like that two iron, dude. I mean, if, if you're not swinging full with that. Bad things happen oh, yeah. when the back. You talk about the back. You know, I I got rid of everything. It, it, I start with a four iron now because I just I'm too old to swing those clubs because yeah. you got to go after them to swing yeah, them, you and do. you don't have to go up to fairways or hybrids. I mean, they are. I, I think in the last ten years, the most revolutionary clubs that have been kind of introduced oh, sure. just to allow golfers you know, distance and accuracy and to get that elevation. And, you know, to your guys' point, 
you can get strong ones, you can get weak ones, you, oh, can, yeah. you, you know, you can you can do whatever you want from a launch window perspective, but man, they're easy to swing. I think of the uh, Luke Curtinine, one of our, our writers, does a lot of instructional work. Uh, he had posted, I believe it was, I want to say, right, it was like, a, I believe it was a, uh, a video or a picture of like Patty Bird, very like famous female golfer. Yep. And she said the top of her swing, <laughs> I'm thinking like, there was no lightweight women's golf clubs. There were just golf clubs. Like people don't realize like, like how good they had to be just from a strength perspective. Cause there isn't like, when you think of the technology that was available back then, right. Or three like persimmon woods, like that is an impressive feat to do that. And now when you can like, and she was obviously a very skilled player. So she enjoyed hitting shots with blades, right. You can go and find yard sales and find old Wilson, Patty Berg blades and stuff like that. Right. It's like, Oh, it's a women's club or Ben Hogan had princess, that was the name, not, not being Texas. That was the name of the golf clubs. They were called like the Princess Irons, and they were a little bit lighter. And they had a, at, at one point, they eventually upgraded to like aluminum shafts because they were a little bit lighter again. But think of like what super lightweight clubs with Dexio does or something like that or high-lofted fairy woods. How much easier – doesn't mean you can't score. It doesn't mean you can't play. But how much more fun and how much more enjoyable, how much easier it is to play the game when you have well-fit equipment. Well, yep. go ahead. I was just agreeing. No, I was, so was going so to say it's funny. My dad told me like until the kind of advent of kids clubs in the 90s, he saw so many kids with these really flat backswings because they couldn't lift the, the, you know, they'd cut down the old man's set of irons and they were so heavy for an eight-year-old. They're just like, they could barely bring it back like this. And they'd have to rework their swing as they got stronger because they thought that was the motion. And, you know, so there's been we always look at kind of the the forefront of technology you know the latest driver or whatever but there's been a lot of kind of fill out uh you know for example ladies clubs that's one of my just pet peeve beefs the golf ball doesn't care about the sex organs that you have when it makes contact all it cares about is club head velocity impact uh position um, and delivery and and you know one of the reasons that women's golf clubs were created were back in the day women were getting hand-me-down men's clubs just like kids were and they wanted a, something to differentiate and so they went to this color scheme and things like that but the reality is now especially with custom club fitting that's obsolete because we have loft angles that can satisfy slower swinging players mm -hmm. and you can have the same technology profile regardless of if you're male, female, um, young or old. It's it's all clubhead speed-based. Exactly. Yeah. Well, boys, that was fun. Well, boys, I think that's a good place to end it. I enjoyed it. All's fun to hang out with everybody in person. Hopefully it wasn't too painful. We should do it again here next week. Or at least next month. Let's just fly back. I know we've been talking about that. Hopefully we can try and do this once a month. As I mentioned, it's... Just better chemistry. Before we wrap the episode, though, I want to let you know that this week's episode of Fully Equipped is supported by Ferry Jockey. We talk about custom golf clubs all the time on the pod, and we're often asked, where is the best place to buy custom golf clubs? For us, the answer is easy because only one place offers the lowest prices on custom-built clubs, and that's fairwayjockey.com. Do your homework. No one beats their prices. You'll save up to 15%, and when you're talking about a bigger ticket purchase like golf clubs, that can add up to big savings. Build your custom set today at fairwayjockey.com. And with that, I think it's a perfect time to get into this week's interview. As I mentioned, I had a chance when I was in Memphis 
for the FedEx Cup event to chat with Tidal's head of tour, JJ Van Wesenbeek, about TSR, drivers, fairways, Spieth, JT, Willie Z, or Trilly Z, as somebody who used to be on the pod would call him. We get into it all. It was a great interview. Appreciate JJ for the time. Let's get to it. All right, well, I will contend that one of the hottest products over the last couple of years has been a driver from Titleist. You know it, it's the TSI. New face construction, it was, look, you never really know. Things might work out, they might not work out, but it's been revolutionary for Titleist. Now TSI is gone. We've got TSR in its place. I want to talk to a guy who's out here working with the tour pros week in, week out on these new drivers in Fairway Woods. JJ, what's going on, man? How are you? Hey, great to see you, Jaywell. All right. First things first, what is or what was the process like for you? And I'm talking you specifically with the change from TSI to TSR. Like, how involved are you? I know you're out here on tour. You head up the guys out here who are working with the tour pros on a week basis. What's it like for you when you're trying to give your feedback on this? How involved are you in, in that process? Yeah, one of my big roles is bringing that feedback back to the office. So the day we launch a product, you know, Stephanie Luttrell and our inside R&D team, their first question isn't how great did it go? It goes, what's next? And they're starting that the day we show a tour player a live product, it's they're on to the next. And so we start that from a launch, we're getting ready for the next launch. So we know that the clock's ticking and it's great with a two year life cycle to have that amount of time for them to be putting energy into shape, sound, feel, flight, ball speed, and look at those things. So they're constantly bringing, whether it's rapid prototypes for shape, um, color cosmetics for paint, or hittable samples to get launch and spin characteristics and ball speed, or at uh, our Titleist Performance Institute to be able to get that data and make those adjustments. So we feel like our bar is always really high and that's always the challenge for R&D is how do you get over a really high bar and they did it in spades with TSR. Yeah, was it, was it more difficult? I mean, the jump from, from the TS to the TSI, I mean, we're talking ATI 425 phase construction, that was a big change for these drivers. Is it difficult when you have a driver that's so different from one to the next? Now it's like, man, this driver was really good. How are we going to get like the next version? Because this one is is so good. Get that next version in the guy's hands. Yeah, I mean, a perfect example is Tom Kim was working with uh, Dino Antonucci at, at TPI and just came out and said, I love TSI, so y you can't make it better. And then he hit TSR for the first time and goes, how did you guys make a better driver? <laughs> Um, and just being able to see some ball speed increases and some uh, consistency numbers that are really important out here. And so, you know, I think each time we ask R&D for a challenge, we think it might be an impossible ask and, and they just are able to succeed every time. It's pretty amazing. Before you get to launch day, when do you start doing prototype testing with the tour pros? Like how far back does that go from like the initial prototype and, you know, I'm sure there are different iterations that are kind of in there that guys are offering their feedback and guys like JT, um, guys like Jordan Spieth, I would imagine, Will Zaltors. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's, it's as, as much as four years. Where Is there, it really? Where there could be parts of the technology okay. that didn't make it into TSI that they were close on or had ideas on 
that are just they'll keep developing that mm. hey this one part was working but we're not all the way there yet so we're just gonna keep developing that and learning about that and so what stephanie and team does a great job on is in this day and age it's normally not one thing it's a lot of little things so when they're looking at all this all these options you know when they're looking at aerodynamics they're looking at face technology they're looking at cg placement it's how do I put these puzzle pieces together to get that sum into a really good place. So in a TSR actual chassis, we had hittable prototypes um, probably six to nine months after the launch of TSI where we had um, Justin hitting prototypes. Um, you know, Farmers is a great week for us because the tour is in town. So we always want hittable prototypes that week. So uh, Jordan Spieth was hitting protos then. Um, where we can get feedback, look at that launch and spin, look if that technology is giving us the ball speeds we want, looking at face angles. You know, uh, Chuck Golden, his team will be out there recording sounds and looking at the frequencies and the durations of those sounds. So if a player makes a comment on sound, how do we control that during the development? Who are your favorite guys to work with when it comes to feedback? Like, I'm sure, I'm sure some guys are probably better than others when it comes to the way they verbalize stuff. Um, who, who are some of the guys that you kind of lean on for the feedback during the prototyping? Yeah, I mean, Justin and Jordan, I've had the, you know, the luck of being able to work with for a number of years. Um, Jordan's pretty amazing to work with in that he will tell you within a millimeter or two where he hit it on the face. Um, so if he says, hey, I hit that three dimples up and about two out on the toe, he's going to be within a dimple of being correct. Um, so his feedback and he looks at numbers, he often travels with two launch monitors that he's always looking at the data. So he'll say that shot should spin around 2200 okay. when I hit that spot of that face. So it's pretty, uh, amazing. And then Justin's really cool to work with because he hits so many shots. When you're making a driver for him, it needs a low cut. It needs a mid flight cut. It needs a really high draw. And then it needs the big high bomber draw. Mm -hmm. So he has all these unique shots he hits with a driver that it's got to hit all the boxes. It can't just be really, really good at one thing. Yeah. So when I see some guys get fit where just hit one shot and that's it, Justin's got to do a lot. So when we're narrowing it in shaft and setting for him, it's got to hit all this stuff. Were you surprised at how quickly Jordan switched drivers? I know he's always like he he puts every driver. I've watched him. He puts every driver through through its paces. Um, he's usually. It just seems like the last few years he's been a little bit slower to change. Were, were you all surprised at how quickly he just threw the threw the new driver in? Yeah, I mean we we always are part of the team, you know. So whether it's Mike Thomas and Justin Thomas or Cameron and Jordan, is we want to be involved and we'd never want a player to switch too fast. And so if it's not checking the boxes, we're not rushing them we're here for the long run. We're here for them to succeed on the golf course. And so if they're not comfortable with some part of it, whether it's something as simple as the sound that we can help with, or, um, you know, getting the face angle to look just right and getting the launch conditions. So we really want to make sure they get enough reps. And so with our launch cycle, we're unique in that we're launching in the middle, almost three quarters away through a PJ tour season. So when you look at adoption rates and how quickly TSR has been adopted on tour, it's amazing that that many players choose to trust it, and it's been unbelievable. I mean, the first week out to have JT Poston uh, win, we had uh, the first three weeks TSR was on tour. Every player that played TSR led the field in strokes gained 
off the tee and you know have a cam smith win the open championship uh his second week with with tsr it, it's amazing to see players adopt it and have success right away as i say it's been i would i would dare say it a dream start it, for for tsr over that first like month month and a half yeah i mean it's really special and and we look at it you know we launch uh, on the pj tour but all these other global tours and seeing success um you know tom bennett who does our fairway woods is you know i'd be remiss if i don't even say that our fairway woods this time around well, we're, we're going to get really to really sure. good too yeah um so it, it's really cool to see on all these international tours and other tours that the driver and the fairway woods are having success as well so uh it just kind of validates all that work that r&d has done over years and knowing that it's working for the best players in the world and that's going to work for everybody so i know there are some big changes to the face construction on the TSR2, TSR3, before it was just sort of, you know sort of the same ATI 425 face across the board. Now you're sort of changing it up. That are going to help. You know, it's going to help benefit the guy who falls into that TSR2, TSR3. What's it been like testing with guys out here? What kind of feedback have you been getting from those guys as they've been testing the head models? Have you seen guys switch? Maybe a guy who was in a three is now in a two. What what's that kind of been like? Yeah, one. It was really cool to have the two, the three, and the four models right at launch you know before that four was an additional add-on so it was a little late and so kind of what we had asked to marketing we're like this new four shape so good we kind of want it all at once and with the new adjustability on a tsr4 we really wanted to see that right at launch and then the shape of the two improved so much the and with really great ball speeds and launch conditions we kind of foresaw it and now we're seeing it so with tsi we were about 75 percent tsi3 we were about 20% TSI2 and about 5% TSR4. So early in kind of our adoption, you know, we'll see a lot more in the off season when these players can get home and get some more time with it. But we're um, we're up to about 25-30% in TSR2, and we're up to about 10% in TSR4. So our mix is being a lot more split because of the improved looks and and how good the performance on the two and the four are. Was you mentioned the looks? Was that something that guys were talking about when you were trying to get feedback on TSI? Like, what would you like to see in the next product? Is is was looks kind of there at the top of the list? Maybe some refinements here. Yeah, I think we try to get our list for each one. I think we saw great performance in I two, but there was a couple things from the CG performance and the aesthetics, and so that was early on our list for Stephanie of some key areas in the face hey, can we refine these two areas and still keep all the great performance that TSI2 had, but really define kind of the toe shape and the heel shape. And so she would get her team to make a rapid prototype. We bring it out here, you know, early in the process, you'll see me on my hands and knees on the range a lot, pointing to areas, getting feedback from players. Mm -hmm. I'll make notes. I'll bring that back. I go meet with R&D every Thursday after I'm out on the tour and get feedback and then she'll make another and we'll go back and forth until we kind of really get that honed in. It's really, you'd be amazed that she's moving things millimeters that make it look very different, all while trying to control the CG properties that she know is gonna perform. So she has a very unique task of, I'm asking things to look a certain way based on player feedback, and then she has to maintain the CG properties to get the performance she know will be delivered for the player. So you work with tons of tour pros. I mean, guys with all different types of swings and different types of deliveries, preferences. But what's the one thing when you're working with a tour pro, if you could say to you know, a weekend golfer, 
hey, just from all the time that I spent tour pros, if, if we can golfers spend more time doing this when they're testing, just say a driver, that they would maybe see a benefit? The, the biggest thing I see is that, you know, we spend a lot of time of trying to get a, a player on center. And I think sometimes they'll get a little bit lost and I'll look at, you know, whether player a consumer or a review post something online, they'll look how great my average is. Mm-hmm. And there'll be a 3,000 and a 2,000 and they'll say, look, my average is 25. And I'm like, well, you hit a heel cut that went over 3,000 to the right and you hit a toe hook that went 2,000 or less to the left. And one of the things with tour players is that delta, that standard deviation off that average mm-hmm. is really important. And so what we found with TSR, and it's one of the things Justin Thomas called out early on, is when he would heal it, the spin wouldn't jump up as much. And when he would tow it, the spin wouldn't drop quite as much. And those are two pretty powerful misses to be able to keep in control, control that spin differential. And so what we found is his highest spin was lower, or his, and then his lowest spin was higher. So that consistency on the face was really big performance variable for him in adopting the driver. I can attest to that after spending a day at Oceanside hitting drivers and fairways. I noticed that off the toe. It's just a lot more consistent spin numbers across the board. And like you said, it's, it's very important. All right. Fairway Woods. I don't want to leave these things out because every year when, and I'll, I'll take the blame for it because the driver is the sexy club in the bag. Everybody wants to know what the new tech is. The Fairway Woods kind of get lost in the weeds a little bit. And I, I sometimes wonder if it's just because tour pros, we always talk about, well, they're never going to change Fairway Woods. Once they find something they like, it's difficult to get something new in the bag. But I've been hearing a lot from the tour guys that I've been talking to that, this, that these fairways are special. I mean, when was the last time you've heard the tour guys this excited about a fairway product? So about six months before launch, I told Tom Bennett in R&D, this will be the hardest fairway wood to get out of someone's bag once we get it in. Interesting. Um, this will be the problem club six years from now. You're going to be like, why is Jordan Spieth still using a TSR3 fairway wood? Mm. Um, we just did a really good job of on the shaping, the sounds in a great spot, and the launch to spin characteristics are really good. You know, One thing we see from our competitors that it's almost problematic out here is it's a push how low a spin a three wood can you make it. And out here, they have that club. It's a driver. It's a really big 460 head. It's very forgiving. So why do I need something else that does the same mm-hmm. thing that's just a smaller head and shorter? So the three wood, if you ask any fitter, is going to be the hardest club in the bag to fit. Every fitter in the world will tell you that because it's got to be really good off the tee. It's got to work both directions. It's got to work up, down. So, you know, I think what you found in the performance of TSR Fairway Woods is that it's checking so many boxes in feel, in flight, uh, in the form, in the look of it, that we're just seeing players, even on different turf conditions, see, again, consistency in that spin, ball speed in the right spot controlling the flight and being able to be so versatile so plus model was that was that through to your feedback to get a to get a stronger lofted you know bigger footprint in the in the rotation yeah that was uh directly from some tour feedback of you know a few of our higher ball speed players like a will zalatoris um works with some stats groups looked at some holes that you know, I think if you asked Will before he looked at his stats, he said, oh, I'm probably half off the tee, half off the ground. Mm. Kind of found it was closer 80, 90% off the tee. And he's a fader of the golf ball. So we were able to take a TSR 2 plus and add a little loft to it, uh, which closes the face slightly. 
And now he has a club that is really high launch, adds a little forgiveness, and then that is his T draw club. Uh, and because we added some loft, he can still hit it off the ground when he needs to, but not that often. And then he has his driver that's more of a fade shape. Do you anticipate that plus model kind of cutting into some of the usage and becoming a bit more popular? Or do you think it's still going to be a very, you know, I wouldn't, I'm not going to say a niche, a niche club because it does have a lot, like you said, it's, it's good off the tee, good off the turf, but do you, do you kind of see it becoming more popular out here? We do. It was part of why, you know, we challenge R and D to make a product like that. And, you know, I think the one hard part with, with the title sometimes is our shaping is so consistent and classic. We tend not to add models mm. so it's really just showing our players hey we have something for you in this space that uh you know we're able to show it to some players that haven't always used it you know danielle kang was out at tpi right after the launch um and she was a tsi3 uh fairway user and show her tsr2 plus and she's like i just hit this thing so straight and so for her you know that three woods a weapon she uses a lot uh on the golf course so you know, I think it's one of those that's going to happen later. So that initial ramp up, a lot of players, I played a TSI 2, I kind of want to see the TSR 2. Mm. That all of a sudden this 2 plus is going to take a little bit from 3 and a little bit from 2. And it's going to be this and a little bit from competitive models. So we're starting to get, you know, those free agents calling a little bit and saying, hey, I, what's this 2 plus? I saw it in so-and-so's bag. Um, so it's one of those we're going to just see, you know, that little late ramp up where, you know, a year from now you're like, what? What was why so many guys are yeah. playing this two plus? Yeah. All right, last question for you. I know that there's another product that's coming out later this year. It's it you're you're you guys are very predictable, so I know it's coming. But I want to know from your perspective: is it is it more difficult to work on these guys trying to dial in woods and ball or iron and ball? Um, irons and, and golf ball. I mean the again your, your precision out here with uh, irons and ball is so important. Um, I have a lot of versatility with driver. I have three models. I have SureFit Track. I have SureFit Hosel. Um, I have a lot of variability where I can move the flight up and down uh, to accommodate where, you know, if a player has used a dynamic old X100 for the last 10 years, they've hit tens of thousands, if not pushing hundreds of thousands of shots. So shafts kind of off the table a lot. And so we really need everything to perform really, really well across the board. So we always want to work green out, knowing that if it checks all the boxes around the green, it checks all the boxes with his irons and the driver's a little bit flat, easy fix. Um, so we know that there's going to be all that performance. And so we'll always work that green backwards. And if we're checking the boxes by the time we get to the woods, we know we have a great performing uh, combination. Awesome. JJ, it was fun. Thank you. Anytime. And with that, we'll do it for episode. Is it 156 or 157? I've lost count, but I've loved every episode of it. Mark's waving his hand. I think we're at 156. Thanks, Coach. 156. 156. As always, if you want more gear goodness, check us out on social media. We are at Fully Underscore Equipped on Twitter and at Fully Equipped Golf on Instagram. Thanks, as all, for listening. See you around.